We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. That if people pursue doctoral education, they should pursue something that's going to provide them a specific set of skills. Well, hello there, and thank you for joining us again on the PA Path Podcast. We are excited to bring you a really interesting conversation today with our colleagues from the George Washington University PA program. We speak with Dr. Ritsima and Dr. Herman about GW, their role in the PA profession, Dr. Ritsima's role in the beginning of the UK model, and also about the controversy around the PA doctorate. So we hope that you'll enjoy this. And if you want to learn more about our guests and about George Washington University, we invite you to check out our website at thepapathpodcast.com. Well, Tammy and Dee, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to get a chance to learn more about George Washington University and about your impressive paths to becoming PAs. Uh, why don't we start with Tammy? And Tammy, if you would be so kind to share your path to becoming a PA with our audience, that would be great. Certainly. Um, so I would say my path is pretty atypical, actually. Um, I had a degree in political science and Chinese studies from the University of Michigan. (laughs) And um, I uh, was actually um, had a serious illness when I was in university. And I was really, really frustrated with how the healthcare system interacted with me. And on the back of that, I actually decided to pursue graduate training in public health, initially with an emphasis on health education um, because of my my own experiences. And I started in the School of Public Health at University of Michigan and liked the health education stuff, but actually fell in love even more with epidemiology stuff. And so I focused on both of those in my training at Michigan. And when I graduated, I started working in family medicine at the University of Michigan, um, helping junior faculty get their research programs off the ground. They got a little frustrated with me because I kept asking, like normally people in public health or in data want to know just like, well, how is this data structured and whatever? And I was like, well, why are you using a beta blocker? Why are you using an ACE inhibitor? And they're like, please, for the love of God, go to medical school and get <laughs> off my back. <laughs> so um, we had a wonderful PA in our Department of Family Medicine there who you know, inspired me to consider PA school. So I had to do a post-baccalaureate pre-med program because I had no biology, no chemistry, no physics, nothing. And 
I came out to the East Coast to do that and then uh, applied to Emory. And Didi and I are graduates from the same year. So she's from Georgia and went to GW. And I was from Baltimore and went to Emory. <laughs> so we sort of crossed paths. And uh, after graduation, um, I worked in neurology and emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins for about a decade before entering PA education full time in 2000. Nine. Wow, that is that is very interesting. And what I found, I don't know about you, Steph, but for me, many of our educators they they start off with, well, my path is a little not not as typical. So I don't know if there's some. We need to do a study, Tammy, about PA okay. educators in the past. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to think that that's uh, compared that's more to common PA. uncommon in PA education. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all a little bit off the beaten path, I guess. So, Aditi, uh, how about you? Well, I'm actually going to describe a more typical pathway, I would say. I um, I was a first-generation college student, and I knew going into undergrad that I wanted to do something in healthcare, but I wasn't sure exactly what that was going to be. I went to college hoping, you know, that I was going to be successful, didn't really know what how it was going to sort of work out, but luckily I was, and I ended up getting a degree in clinical laboratory sciences because I really needed to take some time after graduating from undergrad to pay off some student loans and, and just give some thought to what did I want to do sort of for my long-term career. So I, you know, worked in a hospital laboratory as a generalist where I, you know, was in the blood baking department, chemistry, hematology, microbiology, and I had a lot of interaction with physicians and other healthcare providers, never a PA. I'm sad to say I, I didn't even know about the PA profession until I started doing a little research on, you know, I was sort of in that space where everybody's like, well, maybe I'll go to medical school. And then when I started really thinking about medical school and the time commitment and other things that I wanted to accomplish and do in my life. It just didn't seem that practical to me. And so I started looking at pursuing a career in public health and actually getting a master's in public health. And through that process, I came across the GW PA and PH program, learned about the PA profession and thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I want to do with my life. Like this is the perfect combination for me. And so I um, ended up applying uh, to the GWPA program, absolutely loved my interview and visit here, felt like it was a really good match and fit and was luckily offered admission into the program. You know, to when I was thinking about, my gosh, how am I going to pay for, you know, because as I said, I was first generation college student from a family that didn't really have the means to sort of support me financially through this adventure. I needed to figure out a way that I was going to pay for my PA education. And so I started looking into opportunities and came across the National Health Service Course Scholarship. I applied um, once I knew I was, uh, you know, admitted to the GWPA program, went to the interview, thought it went fantastic, but was not offered the scholarship. And then in the next year, I applied a second time and was luckily offered the scholarship. And so they paid for two years of my three years at GW, which was a huge help for me and also a really wonderful experience um, and opportunity that um, I can talk a little bit more about later if we had the time. Yeah, let, let's let's delve right into that because I think the National Health Service Corps is a, is an amazing program for students and and particularly for programs like ours that are maybe a little bit more expensive. We're not state schools. What a great way to to take care of your your PA debt and start your career with without any significant college debt. 
yeah, it was, it was absolutely for me. I was just so happy that I came across it because, you know, it really mirrored and it, the, the mission of the NHC is to put primary care healthcare providers in areas that don't have access to primary health care, basically. And you know, I've given you a little bit of a glimpse into my, you know, upbringing, upbringing and everything. I, you know, I grew up in a very small rural area. I had family members that were really in rural areas and I saw them struggle constantly with the challenge of just not even being able to get basic primary care and then specialty care. My goodness, it was hours away from their home and their support systems. And it just really dawned on me that the system was just broken in that manner. And then when I read the sort of how the PA profession sort of started and how it was meant to really address the primary care shortage in the nation, I I was like, wow, this is a, a perfect match. And so I was really happy that my personal goals and the NHC's mission were very much aligned. And so when I graduated, I started working in a community health center in rural West Virginia, and it was an excellent experience. Like I, I saw mostly adult patients um, from ages 18 to 65. The medical director was my supervising physician. I shared an office with another physician and we provided care six days a week. We would go out to the migrant farm, uh, to the um, farms in the area and take care of the migrant workers there. Um, And it was a lovely experience. Quite honestly, I would have stayed there for the rest of my life, but my my personal life uh, was sort of going in a different direction. (laughs) And um, for me, it was a wonderful experience. And in fact, you know, when I came back to the DC area, I really searched to um, for a a job within a, um, you know, a federally designated, qualified designated clinic. Um, but it just so happened that the folks that were serving in those roles in DC were very committed to it. And there just weren't any openings for PAs at that time. Um, and so I went into emergency medicine because I thought, well, getting my procedural skills up to speed would help me because you know, it's always been my long-term goal to also end my career um, in a health professional shortage area in a rural area. So I definitely see and have a plan to do that later in my life. And so worked in emergency medicine um, and then started teaching in the program. Um, And I now also work at a clinic in family medicine that serves uh, families that may not have the ability to pay for their health care. It's not a um, federally designated health care center, but it, it has that sort of sense. And I precept some of the GWPA students that rotate there that are also going to be National Health Service Corps scholars or loan repayers. That's wonderful. So, so you still probably the presence of you there as a former NHSC scholar helps promote and you're kind of a, an, an ambassador for the students at your program, I would imagine. Yes, I do end up talking to many of them and encouraging them to apply and sort of giving them a flavor of what to expect when they get out and how they might organize their clinical rotations to prepare them for the experiences that they're um, that they're going to face when they're, you know, a graduate PA and providing care in, you know, relatively resource poor areas. Um, So, um, yes, so I'm very committed to that and I'm really excited that um, I have that opportunity still to really prepare the future generation of um, those who are serving 
in areas of health professional need. That's great. George Washington is one of a handful of programs around the country who offer not only a PA, but an MPH option. Can you guys talk a little bit about the PA-MPH combination and um, how you feel that makes GW unique and maybe what that addition of an MPH offers applicants and students? I actually um, work with Howard Straker to organize that program. Um, you know, I, I obviously have sort of a bias toward it because I came from a public health background before I became a PA. Howard Straker did it the other way around. He actually got his MPH after he was PA and then Didi did it concurrently. So there's different models. Um, but I think we all um, really value the opportunity to teach students to assess not only individual patients, but to assess communities and to assess systems, right? I can prescribe 8 million inhalers to everyone in my town who has asthma, or possibly I could do something about the plant that's spewing pollution and making everyone wheeze. And ideally, maybe I could do something about both of those things, right? And so the dual training allows that. I think it also provides a breadth of a, an approach to medicine that um, people who study only medicine may not get quite as much. We really enjoy the opportunity to offer several different tracks within public health. So I know that some PA programs, they just have a defined track for their PA students, but our students can choose epidemiology, community-oriented primary care, health promotion, health policy, environmental health, global health, maternal and child health as their focus. And I think students really appreciate that, that opportunity uh, to do that. I know for myself, I feel like my public health training impacts my work as a clinician because I'm thinking about something bigger. So I'm not just saying, do I need an x-ray for this person? I'm thinking about if I order an x-ray, what's the cost to the system? If I order that x-ray, what's their lifetime radiation burden? Uh, things like that, that come from my public health training. And again, I don't want to minimize the population health training that we do provide in PA education, but certainly spending a year on it versus spending a few hours a week on it makes a tangible difference. And, you know, we see that a lot of our PA MPH grads, our most successful applicants to National Health Service Corps actually have been our um, PA MPH grads because I think National Health Service Corps recognizes the value of um, population health in medically underserved areas. Uh, a lot. So um, it's really exciting to be involved with. I will just say one last little thing. You can edit it out if you want, but our PA students are absolutely beloved by the faculty in the School of Public Health. Our PA students are super motivated, <laughs> super motivated and um, bright and really have a vision for what they want to do. And um, that really endears them to our public health faculty. Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, for me, having that public health training and that skill set, those skills going into my first job as a PA in a medically underserved area was very important because, you know, in 
you know, in your PA education, in your clinical medicine course, you learn the optimal treatments and, and, and procedures and whatnot. Um, but you don't hear like, what are other options if those things are not available to you or to your patient population or, or, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what I learned in my public health classes, because, you know, I was in public health classes with physicians or other healthcare providers that were providing care in, in, you know, urban DC and our federally qualified, you know, community health centers. And so I was getting a real glimpse into the challenges that they were facing and, and, and how resourceful and creative and innovative they were having to be. And then, you know, that they were having to apply for grants to get certain things for their patients and they needed to know how to navigate the system and the network. And so I found that incredibly valuable for my experience in the community health center as a national health service course scholar. I'm not sure how I would have um, done it without that training, honestly. Could you tell us a little bit more about just generally the George Washington PA program, how it's structured, and maybe expand a little bit on tips that you might give applicants who are who are considering GW? You want to go or do you want me to go, Didi? Go ahead. Okay. Um, So we are, I would say, in some respects, a fairly traditional PA program in that we have a didactic year and a clinical year. Unlike many other programs, we're actually still a 24-month program. And I think that's an advantage in some cases and a disadvantage in some others. So I think that it's it's an advantage if you want to get done quickly. Uh, You're going to a private school. It's expensive. It's nice not to have to pay for another semester. It can be a disadvantage advantage, I think, for students that maybe don't have as challenging an academic background from undergraduate, um, it's really, really drinking from a fire hose um, because it we move so quickly. Our basic sciences are 10 weeks in the summer and you're done. And it's a lot. So we have, tw- tw- you know, sort of 12 months of preclinical and that's fairly lecture or learning group learning session based um, with some small group work. We're not like a PBL program, for example, Um, but we're very fortunate to be part of a large academic medical center and be able to tap resources. You know, we have an excellent department of anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, microbiology, things like that. And our students are actually taught by PhD anatomists or physiologists, things like that, in addition to all of our normal clinical departments that you have at a large academic medical center. Our students in the second year take six-week rotations um, in the seven core disciplines um, plus uh, one elective. Um, They come back at the end of each of those six-week rotations to take an examination and have a couple of days of educational input. And um, we are very proud of our graduates. Our um, We frequently get requests from employers that we would like to hire a GW graduate. Can you send us a list of names? Our alumni are passionate and engaged. A lot of our alumni teach for us, do interviews for us, precept our students. And I actually think that is a little bit of a testament to the program that they want they didn't just say, oh, thank God I'm done with that place, right? That they're calling me up from Boston and Chicago and Dallas and saying, send me a student, send me a graduate. So um, I think um, one more thing I will just say is I'm very proud of our faculty. I think uh, Kevin and staff know this, but um, our faculty are very involved nationally and have been really for decades. 
Um, we have a number of people who've been presidents of AAPA, presidents of PAEA, work on a lot of different committees, Journal of PA Education, um, uh, JAPA, our uh, clinical journal, has been edited by a GW faculty member before. And then um, I've done a bit of international work. And so I think that students benefit from the opportunity to interact with um, leaders in the profession. Tammy, you set us up just right. That's perfect, a perfect transition because we were going to we're going to ask you about your international work. Yeah, one of the, the things that we're doing with our second season is is really starting to expand upon all the different areas that the PA profession is growing, and you had such an uh, a, a important integral role in the growth of the profession in the UK. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that and kind of where things are at in in the UK at this point? Sure. So, you know. Per usual, right? I think sometimes students think that everything is sort of very logical and organized and you apply for something and actually the world kind of doesn't work like that. So how I got involved with the profession in the UK is that I worked at the Johns Hopkins Emergency Department for eight years and one of our nurses ended up marrying a guy who was British and she moved to London and she worked is, as a nurse in a large academic medical center in Southwest London. And one day, a doctor came up to her and said, Sarah, you're an American. What do you know about PAs? And he says, we're thinking about starting the PA profession here. Could you come to a meeting? So she went to the meeting and thankfully they asked the right nurse, right? That could have been a little disastrous. And she went to the meeting and said, we couldn't run Johns Hopkins without them. There's 450 PAs at the time at Johns Hopkins and they're the backbone of the place. Um, and I think that impressed them along with the Hopkins name that PAs are not just used places they can't find doctors, right? But that PAs are being used at a large academic medical center like that. And she said, you know, if you're thinking about starting a program, one of my best friends is a PA and a PA educator, and she happens to become visiting me six weeks from now. And do you want me to bring her by? So they did. <laughs> and um, I met with um, the people that were thinking about starting the program. And um, to make a pretty long story much shorter, they invited me to help um, design some of their curriculum in my areas of expertise, which are neurology and emergency medicine. So for the last, we're in our four, 14th cohort now um, at St. George's University of London, which is the longest continuously running PA program in the UK. And um, I've taught all 14 cohorts. Uh, so even during COVID, I've been teaching online. And, you know, at the beginning, there's, I mean, the UK Association of PAs was about 25 of us, some of the people from the original pilot projects, some of the American PAs from the original pilot projects who'd stayed, and then some of the very first UK trained PAs. And with my research orientation, I actually proposed to them that we start collecting data right from the beginning um, on, on PAs. And I actually spoke with researchers from the beginning of the profession here about if you could go back to 1967, what would you have collected and how would you have collected it? Because as I'm sure many people are aware, the way that for a long time, the way that AAPA collected their data did not make year to year comparisons as easy as they could have been from a methods perspective. So um, so we started collecting that data and, you know, trying to track that. And we wanted to lay a foundation in the medical literature for the profession as it was growing. Um, we felt like that was a key way of establishing credibility for the profession, particularly with doctors, administrators, um, with 
leaders, academic leaders across the country, right? People, people want to know what's in the peer-reviewed literature. And so we set out to develop some peer-reviewed literature for there to be something um, to refer to. From a nader of two programs in 2013, uh, we are now up to 31 programs. There are programs in all four countries, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland um, of the United Kingdom. And we're graduating in the neighborhood of 900 PAs a year. There are about 3,000 PAs now. Um, and you know now we'll be putting out about 900 to 1,000 a year. And we had a long fight. We had a 10-year fight for regulation. And sometimes Americans hear that and they're like, you don't want to be regulated. We're like, no, absolutely, we want to be regulated. And here's why. Right now, anyone like your 89-year-old neighbor with dementia or your four-year-old neighbor um, could call themselves a physician associate, which is what we're called in the UK, and that's not illegal. And in fact, we do have some people that are not actually PAs who have claimed that title and are practicing under that title in the UK. And so we desperately want professional regulation because that also would mean title protection and recognition of our national exam and graduation from one of our programs as prerequisites to practicing under that title. Uh, That... That is moving forward. We're very grateful, but um, COVID and Brexit have both put a pretty big hit on moving that forward because the attention of the government has been diverted elsewhere. We were just told about two weeks ago that what was going to happen in 2022 will not begin to happen until 2023 now. So that's a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. And so as a researcher, I'm sure, especially with that rich data set, what are some of the, I think sometimes as Americans, we just assume that our profession elsewhere is going to be identical to us and we're the the experts. But in fact, in many ways, other countries can innovate differently than we do. And, And so I'm curious what you've learned about the profession through the lens of the UK model. And what are some of those things that really we should be considering as a profession here in the US that you've learned? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one thing I've learned so much is that way more than I ever understood, our profession has developed in the context of an entrepreneurial private practice sort of health system. So for example, a big issue for UK PAs is that it's hard to get promoted and it's hard to get more money. So in the US, if you work in a GI practice and the practice has a good year financially, right? They might give you a raise or give you a bonus. In the UK, they are part of the health system, the national health system. And so you have to, if you want to climb that, you have to take on new roles. So you don't get more money just for being more experienced or good at your job. And so that's had a lot of implications for how we need to train PAs. So for example, if you need to take administrative roles or if you need to take research roles, we need to we need to begin equipping them to be able to accept those new duties, to be able to sort of climb up the ranks. And that's not something I think that any of the American PAs that were involved in at the beginning ever thought about, because that's not how we get promoted or how we get a pay rise in the U.S. You know, one thing that's so interesting, and it's not something we can fix as a profession, unfortunately, but the fact that healthcare and retirement benefits are not 
linked to a specific job means there are some incredibly exciting care models that they are doing in the UK. So for example, there's a hospital that has PAs who alternate between general practice and basically being a hospitalist. And it actually provides really interesting continuity of care through the community, right? Because you can be their hospitalist for a few days and you can check back with them later in what we call GP surgery, general practice, right? Um, You can have people who almost all our PA educators work only one or two days a week and work the rest of the time clinically. And they can do that because they don't need to work in one place to get health insurance. And uh, that, again, I think provides a lot of benefits both to the clinical side and to the education side for them. I think that uh, they have integrated um, credentialing. And so you can, and that's really been huge in COVID. They've just been able to, somebody's just been able to pick up and go to a different hospital in a different part of the country tomorrow. There's oh no credentialing. Because their credentialing is nationwide. Yeah. So as a program director who fills out credentialing forms for every graduate all the time and the multiple, right, for every hospital, that is very attractive. <laughs> that's exactly. amazing. Wow. So, so Tammy, it, um, I have a few really amazing British physicians that I work with here uh-huh. in Los Angeles. And, uh, and they work with us because we have reciprocity in between the licensure and, and, and you know, licensing laws in California and, sure. and uh, their training in the British system, the UK system. So I know a lot of our listeners are wondering, because obviously Americans are working in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any path that you can foresee where the uh, UK trained PAs might end up working in the US in a similar reciprocity agreement? Yeah, that's a really good question. So right now, just to be clear for your listeners here, um, American PAs are still allowed to come to the UK and work under their NCCPA credential. How long that's going to last, right? At some point, they're going to have to sit the British exam, right? But currently, that's still allowed. British PAs would love, just for the same reason that American PAs like to go overseas, would love to be able to come. I think that one of the facilitators to that is that British PA education is modeled pretty closely after American PA education, which is not true in some of the places that train like clinical officers and things. But I think the bigger issue will just be like, will NCCPA allow it? Right now, Uh, There's no accreditation process for UK PA programs. I actually have spent a lot of time, like I spent almost a year writing the initial accreditation documents that, of course, are now substantially modified because I'm not British, but I gave them a good start. And and we have extreme heterogeneity between uh, the quality of PA programs because there's no direct oversight at this moment. We have initiated a process for that. And the same um, organization that accredits UK medical schools will be doing accreditation of UK PA programs. So that's a big win for us. But I think that it would be unlikely that NCCPA would be interested in granting credentials to people from unaccredited PA programs. So I think that would need to get sorted out in the long run. I will also say 
it'll be interesting if that happens to see how how much direct you know which direction people go because pay in the UK is about 50% of what it is in the US. So I would think that there might be more British PAs interested in coming this way than the other way around although they don't have the student loan burden that we have. So all the more so. reason, right? So they don't have the student loans. The, the only difference, of obviously, they have the National Health Service, so that that is, yeah. and we don't um, right. yet. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if we ever will. But th- yeah, I mean, that would be a very attractive thing to be able to come back over here because you could make the higher salary. Right. You're, you're debt free. Yeah. Right. I get that. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is so congrats. That sounds like you've done a lot of really interesting things over there and, and helped them build a really thoughtful model. Well, I just want to say that, you know, I am only one small person in a in a group of really committed people. I mean, there's probably 50, 40 to 50 people that were there from the beginning in one way or another. And we've all slept on each other's living room floors and we know the name of their dog and what year their child is in school because we're really, really close. So I just want to be extremely cautious not to um, assign myself any more credit than is due. I'm part of a really great group of people. So I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and uh, change the topic in thinking about where our profession is headed and what you think that means for PA education. Um, you know, we have a number of things happening in our profession right now with, you know, the, the topic of the doctoral degree being at the forefront. Um, and, you know, certainly the way PAs practice with the AAPA's OTP initiative, I, I think we're at the at a crossroads where we could see our profession changing in a not insignificant way in the next years uh, to come. So talk a little bit about that and maybe from GW's perspective, how are you thinking about that and, and what does that mean for your program and for your students and graduates of your program? Big question, you're both fighting. Go on, Dee Dee. <laughs> we're pointing <laughs> at each other. <laughs> you know, actually, can I just say to begin, I, I actually think Dee Dee and I actually have divergent views on this, to be completely honest. Wouldn't you say, Dee Dee? Yeah, um, uh, maybe. I'm, I'm, I mean, I guess... Yeah, I think I think we do see it sort of from a different perspective. I sort of approach this from the frame, you know, especially when we think about OTP. When I teach PA students, I am teaching them to be independent decision makers and to so that if they find themselves in a situation where they don't have the the team collaboration or the supervising physician that they're prepared and i think that comes from just what i sort of knew i was going to be potentially experiencing as a national health service course scholar um, that i was maybe going to be you know i had no idea what to anticipate i didn't know if i was going to be placed in a satellite clinic where i was a sole provider and in the small town of this larger, you know, sort of health system, I had no idea. And so, you know, I attacked my learning in that manner too, um, when I was a student. And so when I became a PA educator, it just made logical sense to me to, you know, to train the future PAs with, you know, all the, you know, clinical decision-making, clinical reasoning and, 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 you know, experience and knowledge that we could possibly shove at them. Um, And just also teaching them how to be more self-directed lifelong learners in general, and to seek out being able to ask questions and to admit and to be able to self-assess their abilities and their competencies well. Um, And so 
I like sort of the direction that we're going in as far as, you know, TP and, and, and maybe towards a little bit more independent practice. Um, but, and this might surprise you because I just said that I actually am not sort of a fan of the entry level doctorate program. I believe it could have some negative impact on the profession in general, especially the diversity of the profession and the the essence of the profession and why the profession was even formed. I think that obtaining a doctoral degree is a personal decision based on where you find yourself in your career and life and where you want to go. I don't think it's necessary to be a competent practicing physician assistant. I think that where you come from on this has a lot to do with your experience. And, and that I think is actually part of the source of the somewhat divergent views that Didi and I have on this. So Didi graduated and went out to a rural health clinic and had a lot of responsibility right off the bat, but for, but for, and I'm not minimizing this, but for relatively typical complaints, right? Diabetes, hypertension, asthma, things like that. My first job was as the neuromuscular and neurogenetic diseases PA at Johns Hopkins Hospital. (laughs) And I was taking, within weeks of graduation, I was taking care of diseases, patients with diseases that I had never heard of. I was taking care of patients with diseases that my attending would say, well, this is one of 13 people in the world that have ever been diagnosed with this disease. And these diseases were serious life-limiting diseases. And so it gave me a lot of respect for the training of a physician in a residency, the depth of that training and a recognition that, you know, just if you, that you just, you need to really know what you don't know. And I think that's true for all PAs, don't get me wrong, but especially in a setting like this. And I also worked at the Johns Hopkins Emergency Department, which is a level one trauma center in in a city that really has a lot of issues with violence. So again, people are coming in with gunshot wounds to the head and chest and belly, or people are coming in with sepsis and DKA. And six weeks out of PA school, I was not equipped to manage those patients on my own. My training, my five-week emergency medicine rotation had not trained me to care for those patients independently. So I'm a fan of the PA doctor model that we've worked with for a long time, which is where as my competence, both in neurology and emergency medicine increased, the direct supervision decreased, but that that was not a formal sort of legal thing, that that was an assessment of my skills and knowledge by the team with which I worked. I'm also not a fan of the um, doctoral degree as an entry-level degree. I'm well known for this, (laughs) for better or for worse, for advocating that if people pursue doctoral education, they should pursue something that's going to provide them a specific set of skills. So whether that's a doctoral degree in education, whether that's a doctoral degree in public health, whether it's a doctoral degree in um, health economics or health policy or something that, that you go and that you obtain advanced level skills that will help you. And I think that some of the 
entry-level doctoral degrees are so generalist that they don't actually provide a much greater skill set than people have coming out of PA school. And I think that's particularly reflected in some of the programs that are only like a year long. You know, an EDD or a PhD is five to seven years. DRPH is four to five years. And I just think, you know, you probably have more opportunities to gain specific skills with um, slightly longer training. So that's been something that I've found interesting is that, you know, because the profession as a whole really hasn't had a collective conversation about really discussing what it means, you know, what a PA doctoral degree means or what that would look like, or should it be focused in one specific way? Should there be some standardization? And so, you know, that really speaks to what you were saying is that, you know, what do you, what do you think the opportunities and threats are of that? You know, and to me, it seems like there is a risk of some factioning of our, of our profession because, you know, we have entry-level doctorates and then, you know, we have the, you know, the other doctorates that you spoke of that, you know, maybe focused in a more, you know, more specific area or skill set. So what do you think that means for our profession going forward? I, I, I will say that I think that it, what you need to pursue depends on what you want to do. From my perception, I think that a lot of these entry-level doctorates are a response to a perceived threat from the nurse practitioner profession, that they just want to say, be able to say like, hi, I'm Dr. Smith, in the same way that the nurse practitioners say that. The data is not clear to me that actually there's a particular threat. The studies that have been published on that are all about PA or NP perception. So they're like, I believe I didn't get this job because of this or that. But it's really hard to know why you didn't get a job, right? Like, did somebody just, did you just not vibe with somebody? Or was it really that somebody just looked at paper? And I'm not saying it's not, I'm not saying it's untrue that PAs without a doctoral degree are being denied. I'm saying I don't think that we've ever looked at that in the a systematic way that would really prove or disprove that assumption. And so maybe, you know, maybe entry-level doctorate, if, if nobody's ever going to hire another PA again, maybe that's just what we'd have to do to compete with the PTs and the NPs and things like that. I think that there's a separate question about expertise. So I wonder about if you want to be a clinical leader, if you'd be better off getting an MBA and being able to speak that language, right? Or if you want to be an educator, if you'd be better off getting an EDD. And so I th- I'm not entirely sure that these entry-level doctorates are being marketed toward or being developed toward a specific outcome. And I think that's sort of the definition of doctoral education, right? Even the NPs, they're getting, when they get a DNP, they're getting it in pediatrics or oncology. They're getting it in an area of specialization. The idea of an undifferentiated doctorate is not actually a real thing, at least in academia, right? You by definition have to focus on something. What do you think, Didi? <laughs> I agree with everything that you said. Um, You know, as far as going back to the topic of competition from nurse practitioners, you know, I can sort of give you uh, sort of my perception from the lens of serving as the chair of the PA advisory committee for the DC Board of Medicine. We have a lot of work to do um, 
regarding advocacy for the profession and education still regarding the profession and our skill sets and our scope of practice and everything. And sometimes I think it's easy to think, well, well, if we just sort of require that everybody's trained at a, a doctoral level, everything will work itself out. And that's not the case at all. There, you know, I have seen firsthand the, um, concerns about PA practice um, and and the sense of competition that we might even um, have in the healthcare, you know, in the, in, in the healthcare system, even from, I saw that um, very vividly in the board of medicine, some physicians just being very resistant to give us more opportunity to practice at our school, you know, at our, our level of training, um, because there was concern that a doc would open up an urgent care and employ, you know, 20 PAs um, that were just, it was like a, a factory of some sort. And um, so I feel like we, our efforts should probably be more um, centered around um, really proving what we can provide to the healthcare system and to the healthcare team and um, building trust in our abilities. And I think that if we could do that, I think that we could get everything that we're looking for from the scope of practice and, and, and opening up some more doors for a little bit more independent practice in the future. I think it's interesting to consider whether actually walking into how introducing ourselves as doctor, right, especially in a clinical setting, might actually impair our quest for increased scope of practice, right? right? Because people are going to say, I'm not going to hire somebody who's going to introduce themselves as doctor when they're not a doctor. And I don't want to, I don't want a piece of that. So I think we, we, it's painted as this will move us forward, but I'm not entirely convinced that particularly with both organized medicine and with individual doctors, that it would necessarily be beneficial. I think from my perspective, the, the doctorate does move us forward in terms of our knowledge base. And to your point, Tammy, I think it really does. You become much more adept at a certain topic uh, at, through the process of your dissertation and your research. I think the the issue that Dee brought up related to the physician community having consternation about that is valid and and challenging. Paula Phelps talked about this with our Idaho discussion. She's on the Idaho P, uh, the Idaho Medical Board, and so I, I'm not surprised to hear you said that, Dee. I think it's you, we've got these competing factors, right? We've got these the increasing MBAization of health systems and mm-hmm. hospitals and clinics who are looking at the bottom line and and there's this pressure in the US model of healthcare to be profitable you you have to be profitable our our students say they're excited to go out and make a six figure salary but sometimes there there's a disconnect as to what that means and you have to produce revenue to support that salary and and yet at the same time you have the physician community that is you know we were our DNA was built on physician extension in partnership, in collaboration, and now we have some people in our profession that are that are unclear what OTP really means. I'm not even sure that our national groups understand what they're really saying. There seems to be a, a schism between different groups on what that means, and it it's creating concern among the physician community, which I think is legitimate. 
So until we as a profession have absolute certainty of what we what our DNA is going to be in the next 10 or 20 years, I think we're going to continue to fight this. You know, interestingly, I've had people that are big advocates of OTP who work clinically and are not educators that I work with clinically um, come up to me and say, well, you you people in education, you need to train them more. You need to do more so that we they can just be independent from the get go. And I was like, well, how long do you think would be appropriate? Like three years, four years? Like, Well, maybe. And I'm like, but then why wouldn't you just go to medical school? Right. And they don't have a good answer for that. Um, there's a reason that it takes at minimum seven years for someone to be go from being a college student to being a full-fledged doctor, right? We know that there's benefits to repetition and pattern recognition and increasing skill set over time. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm proud to be a PA, but my mother had Parkinson's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and coronary artery disease. And I will be completely honest with you. I did not want her primary care provider to be a newly graduated PA who was taking care of her on the back of a four or six week ambulatory medicine rotation. She's very, very complicated. And I would not trust a new graduate with that level of pathology. Yeah. The, the average physician after residency has 15,000 hours of clinical experience. The average PA somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500. That, that's a huge difference. Yeah. Well, super interesting. I mean, we, uh, Steph, we haven't done this yet. We should probably invite, you know, competing theorists on this show so that we can kind of get get to like they do on the on the network channels right you know the the point counterpoint of point PA counterpoint i was just yeah. gonna say that face the pa nation yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh tammy we got to do that both steph and i were commenting in the chat box how interesting this has been um we always ask our guests if there's something that we didn't cover that you'd like to share so we want to certainly leave that opportunity open to both of you do want to go back to and then I know that you've done this in other uh, podcasts as well about um, what would you know what would make an applicant really stand out um, for GW and I just want to say and I think Tammy would agree with me that um, in general we're looking for someone who has who can demonstrate a commitment to service leadership advocacy and who is resilient and, and it, it's not, shouldn't be surprising that that's what we're sort of looking for, because when you look at our faculty and, and the leadership roles they've done and the advocacy work that they've done and the service that they've done, we're all we're looking for the future generation of PAs and PA educators. So I would say that if you're a well-rounded person that has, you know, all of those qualities, then you're a competitive applicant for the GW Prey program and we welcome your application. Outstanding. Thank you for covering that, Dee Dee. Tammy, anything from your perspective? No? Well, wonderful. Thank you both so much for taking the time with Steph and I to share everything about GW. It's been such an impressive institution for so long. We're talking, Steph and I are we're doing a uh, session on the closure of the first season. And there's so the six degrees of separation are really interesting through all the podcast sessions we've had. And of course, Jeff Heinrich has come up on previous podcasts, Howard Straker, uh, Jackie Barnett. There's just such, you know, um, uh, Susan Layla Shore. Jim Cauley. So, yeah, you, your original point, Tammy, about the tradition at GW is is really um, well respected. And I just want to say thanks. Thank you for having thanks. us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
want to thank our guests, Dr. Tamara Ritzman and Dr. Dee Dee Herman, for their candor and insights into the profession. What a great conversation. And we're just so thankful for their leadership in our profession. Next week, as we speak with Mr. Stephen Neal, he's a graduate of the University of Southern California. He's a National Health Service Corps scholar, and he is the chief of staff for the Navajo Clinic at the Chinle, Arizona Indian Health Services. He has this unique leadership role as a PA that I think you'll enjoy, and a servant heart to serve others in underserved communities. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Arizona.